Welcome to the Flow State Podcast, where we're all about finding balance. We're your hosts, Monica Groni and Nora Candido. Now let's get into the flow. Welcome back, Flow State Podcast listeners. We have an exciting guest joining us today, and I'm so excited to dive into the topics that we're going to talk about. As many of you know, Nora and I are very passionate about women's health and especially women staying active through their whole lifespan. And I think that our guest today is going to have a lot to say on this topic. So welcome to Dr. Alyssa Olenek, who holds a PhD in exercise psychology and is a certified sports nutritionist. Uh, Alyssa posts the best content on social. I have been eating it up, loving watching her train for ultra races, get super, super strong in the gym. And I think we can all learn something from her today. So welcome. Thanks for being here. Hello. Thank you for being here. The only thing I'll say, it's exercise physiology, not psychology. I just don't want anyone to think that I'm a brain person. I'm a body person. (laughs) So just so the audience isn't confused, that's my bad. (laughs) Yeah, that's totally okay. They're close enough, but I don't want people to be like, why is this psychologist talking about physiology here today? So hooked on phonics over here. You are totally okay not to put you on the spot. Listen, I'm just as phonetically challenged as anyone else, so you're totally okay. (laughs) Thank you so much for correcting me. That's really funny. I love that. Although I'm sure there's a lot of brain-body connection. Not obviously we stay in our practice here, but there's so much connection to that and we can definitely dive more into that later. Yeah, maybe we can dive into my theory on how the brain's actually altering performance, not physiology, if we want to today. But yeah, not a psychologist by trade, though. (laughs) Just I'm sure nobody's like, who is this doc? Listen, why doesn't she have any mindset content? I do have friends with PhDs in that, though, that you can find. So it's a great field, just not mine. (laughs) I would love to hear just a little bit more about your background. How did you get into this industry? And just a little bit more about you. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up an athlete. I was a multi-sport athlete, tri-letter, high school athlete. Lacrosse is my big thing, but I ran cross country and track a little bit too. And I just really, you know, as the story goes, I just started running to become a better athlete. And I just fell in love with fitness. And I just wanted to learn as much as I could and share with everyone for the rest of my life. And I didn't know about all these discrepancies in female fizz or all this stuff or any of this. I just knew that I just really liked working out and I really liked sports. And so You know, I went to college and I played lacrosse. And as the story goes, I had the highest GPA and the lowest playing time. And I kind of knew that I was like, I kind of never really thought of myself as smart or a science person, but I kind of accidentally found that in college that I was really good at science and I really enjoyed it and I was a good student. And so I kind of left college sports after two years to really pursue my school a little bit more intensely. But also within that, then I started to like really dive into just like, fitness as a whole starting that junior year on. So I was like concurrently always like experimenting with my own fitness while preparing for grad school. And then eventually I went on to get my master's. And that's where I was first exposed to like female physiology research. I started doing research in undergrad, but then I had female mentors and they were doing a lot of pregnancy research and metabolism stuff. And so I started to do, you know, parallel projects with them. And I did my master's thesis was on metabolism in women. And then I, you know, brought those skills to my PhD And I ended up, you know, doing a few projects specifically on women and including women. And I was able to get some funding for people who are doing female specific stuff for sex differences and stuff like that. And so that really like helped magnify my interest in that. One, I was motivated by getting bought out of teaching so I could just focus on research. 
But two, you know, I grew up a female athlete. I started to realize there was all these gaps in sports science. Metabolic health is really important. I really care about metabolic health. Like at the end of the day, like that's my big MO. And so I just kind of fell into it by accident. I wish I had some inspirational story where I was like fighting the patriarchy and finding my way up. And I was just like, I liked science. And I just happened to fall into this woman's stuff. And then I started to realize that there was these gaps as I went along the way and kind of unpacked this. So my goal all along was just to do more metabolism and metabolic stuff. But then I kind of started to uproot all this female specific stuff along the way as I went through that. And then, you know, now I'm doing a postdoc in menopause to kind of span the lifestyle time with my training. So I kind of have training from, you know, you know, the whole change of our hormones across our life, so to speak. And that's what I'm doing right now. So yeah, I've been in science research academia now for like over 12 years. I don't even know how long it's been. And then as Monica mentioned on the side, you know, I've done everything from powerlifting to strongman competitions to ultra multiple ultra marathons, dabbled in some crossfit type stuff. I just like, I joke I'm a jack of all trades and a master of none, but I think I'm finally a master of a few by this point in my career. So, I, you know, I love science and research and human physiology, but I also just like love fitness and exercise and movement as much as that. So I, you know, I practice what I preach and I and experiment with my own stuff and like to, you know, translate the science and practical application for people because I'm obsessed and you don't have to be as obsessed with me, but like that kind of, that's where my career kind of came because I was just obsessed with learning as much as I could about everything related to exercise science. Yeah. I can hear your passion and your voice. You get so excited talking about it and I like feel similarly. So it's really fun to have you here. I think Nara and I have talked obviously about cycle thinking on this podcast a lot. And I think that your opinion on this, I really respect and love. And we've just talked about frustrations around some of the conversation with cycle syncing in the women's health space that's really pushing women towards spending half of their cycle doing restorative movements. And I would love for us to kind of just get right into it and talk about what your opinion might be on that perception of cycle syncing. Hey there, Flow State Podcast listeners. It's your host, Monica. I wanted to interrupt this episode real quick to share with you a little bit about my brand, Marea. Marea is a nutritional company that helps support women who are dealing with symptoms of hormone imbalance. I don't know about you, but I struggled with awful periods for over 17 years. Head back to season one, episode five, to learn more about my story and struggles with PMDD. When I discovered the life-changing benefits of having a solid foundational multivitamin in my everyday routine, my life was changed forever. I had more energy, my moods were balanced, I was able to resume life as usual and feeling normal sometimes just feels so freaking good. That's why I teamed up with dietitians, nutritionists, naturopathic doctors, and OBGYN to create the best possible foundational multivitamin for women who experience symptoms of hormone imbalance. I am so excited to share this with you. If you haven't checked it out yet, head to www.mareawellness.com and of course, for all of our listeners, I have a special discount. You can use the code FLOWPOD, F-L-O-W-P-O-D at checkout to get a special discount. Okay, back to the episode. Yeah, so I don't know what the conversations and topics of previous episodes are, what kind of knowledge your audience is coming in with, but I want to like give myself the cushion disclaimer because I think a lot of the times when I express on social media my opinion on cycle syncing, 
People think that I'm against women. I'm thinking we're just men. Like, I'm ignoring us. Like, I'm saying that, like, your cycle is zero impact. Nothing's happening whatsoever. And it's like, I call it the scale. And I have the spectrum where I consider the state of cycle syncing. Nothing's happening. Nothing's changing. Like, you're making this up. You're nocevoing yourself, blah, blah, blah. And I think that that ignores individual experience and potentially things that we can work with to improve things when people are saying, hey, my cycle is impacting me, right? I think that ignores the person, even though that is largely what the data is pointing to at this point in time. Don't shoot the messenger, everybody. I know people don't like to hear that, but that's, you know. I want to zoom out because if people are like just landing here, they've never even heard of cycle syncing before. They're like, what the heck are these ladies talking about? I just want to give super, super brief overview that there are recommendations or guidelines out there for movement, social engagements, work, nutrition, cooking methods, all of these things just based on where you are throughout your menstrual cycle. So we're talking just about what's the science behind it? Is there validity to it? Should we be following these things? Is it a rigid thing? Resumed. <laughs> yes. So there's this side of it too. And so you know, there's the hardcore academic side right now that's like, at least when you come to like exercise and some of the metabolic differences, for the most part, the data isn't like this like broad, sweeping, amazing, conclusive, yes, this is what you should do this week and this week and this week and this week and follow this protocol like Nora was saying we're seeing on social media. But then you have the hyperswing, which is this kind of over-extrapolation of hypothesis based on how we think hormones are going to interact with things and then giving exercise prescription based on this. And I think that this is often just poor hypothesis and coaches giving this as prescription and absolute truth. And sometimes I think it misses nuance of mechanism doesn't always translate to whole body outcomes and translation. Or it's like more often than not ignoring good exercise guidelines or good exercise programming and application because it's coming from like a hormone lens, not an exercise performance lens. And so it's giving this all under this guise of like hormonal fragility and hormone extrapolation. And so I want to make it really clear, like I'm in the middle here of, hey, there's a lot of people who report their cycle is impacting their training or their perception of their training or how they feel X, Y, and Z. That is valid. But like my approach isn't let's change our training every single month, week of the month. We have no established protocol for doing that. We have no data suggesting we should do anything other than individualized adjustments at this point in time. We have some early data that we can talk about, but the studies, one, we need more high-quality studies that's rampant in the literature right now across the board. And there's actually a great group with a bunch of the bigger names that are bigger established researchers are actually trying to do this right now. There was just like a published report of this, of like what they're going to try to do because, you know, we keep saying we need more and better, but like who's going to do that? Well, not us youngins, but, you know, hopefully this more will come and there's been a big push for it over the years. But I really think it's important to note that if there was like this big, broad, sweeping, conclusive thing, we'd probably see it emerging to some degree more clearly in the data that we are having. But the issue is a lot of methodological considerations are like, there's not a good control of what actually, what phase people are in when we're testing things or executing things and all that stuff. So my take on cycle syncing is that you don't need to change your training across the month, but you can work with your hormones and support yourself. I kind of take more of a nutrition forward focus on this. and then. Let's think about how we can feed and fuel ourselves or adjust what we're doing to better support our hormone cycles and how we feel. And then how do we use tools and good programming strategies to mitigate certain times of the month where maybe you feel worse or, you know, your performance doesn't feel as good or your gym sessions aren't as good. 
and or let's understand why if performance is going to be impacted or your training is going to be impacted when it's happening and why that might be happening. And I think that like it's hard to explain that because it's a little more nuanced than what people want to hear. They want to hear only do hit on these days, only do strength training on these days, only do tempo work on these days, only do yoga and Pilates on these days. And so the issue with it is more of the fact that a lot of the protocols that we're seeing out there, they're incongruent. If you line up 10 different cycle sync protocols, they're all going to say 10 different things because it's just people's interpretation and application of a little bit of data or just overextrapolated hypotheses. Or you're going to see this new trend of like, hey, luteal phase, menstrual cycle phase, let's do nothing that is of any intensity. Let You're so fragile. Your hormones can't handle it. You need to do rest and restore and blah, blah, blah. And so we're spending a third to like up to half, depending on the duration and the person that the prescription is, of only doing this like gentle restorative exercise. And that's where I take a lot of issue with it. If people want to like front load their month of training because there might be some early preliminary loose data that it supports hypertrophy better, then so be it. I don't care. That's fine. I'm not mad about that. Just do whatever you want. But when it's telling people to not exercise and only do Pilates and only do yoga and only walk, when we're talking about a population that doesn't meet the exercise guidelines, especially in the late 20s, 30s, to 40s, childbearing years, and then we think about the long-term metabolic risks that are associated with aging in women, we really, really need to think about what are we actually prescribing to people because is it actually helping them or is it harming them because we don't know how to properly program exercise training or give people the skills to work with the changes and perceptions of what they're having individually than just applying a blanket, one-size-fits-all thing. I'm sure you guys have covered this on podcast if you have it. You know, for the listeners here, the, the cycle is in 28 days, cookie cutter, picture perfect. Everyone has the same cycle. Ovulation isn't at the same point for everyone. The duration of your follicular phase and your luteal phase will vary person to person and month to month. And it, if it's going to be longer and short, it's going to be that follicular phase. And so we're giving this one-size-fits-all blanket prescription of people with 21-day cycles, 28-day cycles, and like 35-day cycles, rather than teaching them the tools, one, how to figure out where they're even at, and two, how to potentially improve some lifestyle behaviors they're having that might magnify when they feel crummy when they're training or recovering or whatever it is. And then also how do we teach them how to actually manage volume, load, or intensity in response to things that might either actually be changing or their own perception of what that feels like during certain phases, which is different for everyone. It could be late luteal, it could be menstrual, it could be ovulation. It just kind of depends. So that's why you know, my take is it's not sexy, right? It's not, oh, there's nothing changing at all, or you needed to follow this four-week protocol. It's, we're probably not at the point yet where we really need to worry about this for most gen pop people at all. But if we're going to, you know, I believe in a hierarchical approach of making sure you're fed macros, micros, food, water, adequate calories, sleep and stress being managed, are you actually following a consistent, manageable, progressible training program? Or are you doing haphazard random workouts? Because if you're doing haphazard random workouts, Look, what is cycle syncing going to do for you? And then two, like then from there, we can think about like, what are the hormones doing in our body? What might be altering what we're doing here? And then, okay, let's individualize this to the person. And I think people don't like that because they want a cookie cutter approach. And they're like, they're like, well, women are ignored and everyone's leaving us out. I'm like, no, it's so special and unique that it's individual to you. We're not saying that your perception is invalid. We're saying that the application adjustments should be to you, not same as Susie and Karen and Alice and down the street and what works for you this month might not in six months because of the way our cycles and bodies change. So we need to be emphasizing 
like, I know I'm ranting here. I know you guys wanted this conversational, but like, it's so <laughs> frustrating to me because it's like, we're not teaching coaches or people how to actually have skills to manage these things. And then when their hormones change or they get their postpartum or their perimenopause or menopause, then they're like, oh my God, I need an exact cookie cutter template of what to do because I don't know what to do rather than teaching people how to like listen to their bodies, work with their bodies and understand what's actually happening. So that's my nice way of saying like, I think a lot of cycle singing stuff is bogus, but I don't think that women are like, there's nothing ever happening there. That's like my nice way of saying that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're definitely of the same camp. We'll just come right out and say that. And I really want to highlight what you reiterated is the individualization, which is true for nutrition. It is true for movement. We should not all be doing the same thing. And that's really important. But I also think that the biggest key that's missing, and we've talked about this a ton here, is just people are so disconnected from their body that they don't even know what they really need. And that's where like people come to work with me and they're like, just tell me what to do. Just give me the meal plan. And I'm like, no, I will teach you how to eat and how to listen to your body and how to make sure you're adequately nourished. But I'm not always going to be there <laughs> and your body's going to change. And today could be different from tomorrow or next year or next month. And having those skills, just being able to know what your body needs. Oh, you know, I had this workout planned today, but I actually... I do not feel well rested. I slept really poorly last night and I'm going to lean into that. And your body will give you feedback. Your recovery might be better. Your sleep might be better. You are just going to feel different if you honor that as opposed to go against it. Also here for like, sometimes you do just need to push through when you feel better on the other side. Like there is a lot of gray area in all of this. And I think that is just what's challenging, but there is an overwhelming amount of free information, both in the fitness and nutrition world, the people are just so confused because there's the million and one differing opinions and a ways to go about it. And, you know, just because I look a certain way doesn't mean that everybody is going to look similar to me. And we have to take all of those individualized components into consideration. And that's the premise of my work anyway. I'll speak to that. <laughs> yeah. I always say that I think the big reason cycle syncing has taken off for, you know, many reasons stuff takes off in social media is that for many people, it's been the first time that they feel like they've had permission to take rest. But I always say you don't need cycle syncing to give you permission to take rest or take it easy or swap your workouts or just like you've always had that permission and it's like it's more the fitness industry's narrative towards women on what they should be doing for fitness and health that have become where it's disconnected, push all the time, do the most you can do, ignore your body, restrict, under eat, you know, go, 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 go. I mean, I always am in defense of sports science. So like sports scientists have, have never, ever, ever suggested that this is the way to live and train and support yourself. But I think that it's given them this the first time in their life, they're like, oh, I feel like a hot garbage can. Maybe I shouldn't do this today. But like then learning the skill of like, hey, you know what? I know that I don't feel great, but I always know I feel better when I do this after I do this. But that's a really hard skill, like you were saying, for people to learn. And you're going to mess it up as a beginner. Like you're just going to you're going to mess it up. But yeah, it's exactly that. It's this individualization. And there's a lot of things that work for most people. But then it's that fine tuning to you. But yeah, I fully agree. I think that we just have a lot of people who are just, you know, stressed, overwhelmed. They don't want to think about they already fitness and health is already enough as it is. And that's one of my big reasons. I'm like, especially for gen pop people, like, 
what is a four-week cycle syncing routine doing for people who can't even adhere to a workout routine for a week where it's changing the protocol every single week? What is that doing for that person as is when they're already confused? They don't even know what to do. And they're like, wait, I'm supposed to do this this week. How do I know where I'm even at in this week? Like we have to think about where people are at with that. But then, you know, I think that's where the skills for figuring that out for yourself really comes into play. Yeah. One of the things that I heard you say was you talked about periodized training and how people right now are also just coming in. And I've seen this a lot. People just like have a couple YouTube fitness people they like to follow. So they do that a few days a week. Then they go to a yoga class a few days a week. They go to a hit class a few days a week. I'd love for you to just explain like to our listeners periodized training and the benefits of having a training plan that is consistent for a period of time and kind of what differences someone might see who is just mishmashing something together or sticking to a plan over a six to eight week period of time. Yeah. So I always want to preface these conversations because I know there's so many barriers to exercise with people is that whatever you're doing that's getting you moving is good for your health. Yes. Right. But what is good for health and minimum standards for health might not always be enough for specific results that you're looking for, whether that's for body composition or health or performance. So all movement is good movement, right? And so there's a spectrum of movement versus exercise versus training that I like to kind of talk about. And so if you're moving just to move and you're doing random things all the time, that activity isn't worthless because you're not having like some specific adaptation or whatever. And I think a lot of the fitness industry makes people feel bad when they do that stuff, like they're wasting their time. And it is absolutely, again, not a psychology PhD, but that is not how you get people to be active (laughs) and feel good about themselves and have that like self-motivation, all that stuff. And then you have exercise, which is usually, you know, movement or exercise fitness-based training with the idea of specifically improving certain metrics. It's more intense. It's going to be more specific. And then you have training where you're programming that exercise training to be very specific to outcomes or goals that you are looking for. And most people would benefit from just going to movement because <laughs> most people don't move. But if you're in that movement category and you're not seeing results with either improving your cardiovascular fitness, you're not gaining strength, you're not gaining muscle, your body composition isn't changing, you don't feel like you're actually like improving in your training, you might need to do more exercise. And then on that spectrum of exercise to training, you know, you have like elite level athletes who are so dialed in, there's no fluctuations in anything they're doing. Most of us are never going to have that happen. Or if, you know, I think a lot of people, they worry about moving to this more specific periodized progressive training program. They think they're going to lose that. They want the variety. They want the interest. They want the uniqueness. So let's like explain maybe the benefits of this and say, and I always want to tell people like, you're an adult autonomy. You can choose to just do whatever you want. Just, but the information though is still the information. So when we think about shifting more in that exercise to training spectrum, just depending on wherever you fall with your goals and what you have, which that might alter through time, right? You know, I was very specific when training for an ultra this past year. Now I'm a little less specific, but it's still structured and intentional. But when we're thinking about a progressive training program, you're thinking about following the same training program, whether that's lifting, cardiovascular training, skill work whatever that is specifically for what you're trying to improve at for the same like week essentially of training for multiple weeks in a row where there's small if any variations in what you're actually doing giving your body the time to not only adapt but make progress within those so an example with weight training would be like today i did my lower body squat day 
And I've been doing this lower body squat day for a month now, and I'm getting better. I made the comment to my coach, these squats are feeling easier this week. This weight is feeling lighter. I was able to go up in weight this week compared to last week because I'm doing the same thing over time, you know, same thing repeatedly. And it gives your body the chance to adapt because strength is neuromuscular. So you have to kind of adapt to the skill and then you can start getting stronger within it. But when you do a different program every single week, all of the time, you're never giving yourself the chance to actually adapt to that and then make progress within that. But then when it comes to like muscle gain and hypertrophy, you have to have this repeated dose exposure of the stressor or the stimulus that you're trying to have on your body, telling it to grow and targeting the things that you want to grow. So when you do the same lifting program week after week, that gives your body the chance to take all of these small signals of every training session that you're doing and turn those in basically to protein. <laughs> those proteins become muscle or these signals become signs to your body. Hey, we keep getting the signal. We should adapt to what we're doing. You know, the same thing happens with cardiovascular or endurance training. I think that, you know, it depends on what your goals are. If you're training for a race like Monica or me, you're going to have to run and you're going to have to get over the fact that you're going to have to run because running makes you better at running. But if you're just training for health or whatever it is, you can be a little bit more random with that, but you're still going to have to do specific things if you want specific results from them. So if you want to improve your aerobic fitness and you have a really terrible aerobic fitness, you might have to do a lot of easier stuff. But if you want to get better at high impact or high power output type stuff or improve your VO2 max or, you know, you only have a short bit of time, but you want to get your most results from cardio training, you might have to do like these short, all intense based sessions. And that might depend on one, how much you're doing and two, what your goals are. And then three, how much you're doing in a week will be, hey, we're doing this workout this week. Okay, well, I want to get better at this. I'm going to do the same specific workout next week and try to get faster or I'm going to try to get better, but it's not going to be week after week in any of these. Sometimes you guys, you might have stagnant progress for a long time before you break through. But this way of training with progressive overload is what allows your body over time. What basically happens is that your fitness level over time will increase, and then you can increase the workload that you're doing to match that new fitness level. I think people think that they have to do more in order to get that to raise up. The idea is that your body over time will adapt and then your ceiling will increase, and then you can rise up, whether that's adding more weight or doing like a more difficult skill or more miles or a faster pace or not scaling the Metcon or whatever that looks like over time so that you can improve to that new work. And then you keep going and you keep rising to that. And then your ceiling of fitness improves over time. But if you're doing random things all the time, your body's okay, you're doing some strength training for a week, but then you go and do yoga training and then you do some cardio training. Your body's getting no consistent signal of what to actually do and it's not getting enough of it frequently enough for it to actually turn into anything meaningful. So I think a lot of women specifically get frustrated because they do yoga, Pilates, group fitness, boot camp type stuff because people only think of results as body changes. And I know that. I know I just you yiddled off to you about strength and aerobic training adaptations and no one cares because they just want to look better. But that stuff is going to be more specific and it's going to actually improve most of the things that you're looking for. And so, you know, I never want to shame any of these other ways of moving and they might have a place and be fine or can be considered within a program. But if you're just doing random things all the time, you're just going to get random results. You have to have a little bit of stuff that is specific to what it is that you're trying to do. And you have to do that repeatedly over time and not just six, eight, 12 weeks, like years for it to really transpire into meaningful adaptations. And that's not meant to say that you won't start seeing progress or results in short periods of time. But these large scale changes, you know, they happen because your body is remodeling and making new tissue and more like different cellular organelles and all this in the inside. It's not just an overnight kind of change. 
But you kind of have to do the same thing over time. And that's how you actually get those, you know, everyone wants to look better and be leaner and more toned and all that. I know that's what people care about, but I will try to convince you in this episode to care about performance too. And like that's going to come from actually intentionally training your muscle to grow week after week doing the same thing. And it's not boring, but it's probably boring and uninteresting to you because you're not doing it at an intense enough level or you've been turning it into cardio your entire life. But that's usually what people need mixed with, you know, cardio gets a bad rap, but well-programmed cardio that, you know, contrasts between lower intensity stuff with more moderate to higher intensity stuff appropriately dosed based on what you're doing overall is where we start to get more of these specific results that are contrasting in our fitness that allows us to recover while also pushing hard and making progress instead of just doing either nothing but low impact stuff all the time or only moderate intensity stuff that doesn't actually span far enough into cardio or far enough into weightlifting to get anything like specific at any point in time. Yeah, I literally did not even start following a program until this year. And I was a gymnast for 11 years. Then I got into lifting and I've been lifting ever since then, going on 15 plus years and had gotten away with it, just doing all of those random things, staying fit, active my whole life, but have never passed that off to somebody else. And I can even speak from my own experience now of how different it feels. And it's not just about, my body hasn't changed dramatically, but I feel so much better. Like my knee pain has decreased. My feet feel better because I've been working out barefooted and like it's supporting my whole posture, everything. I just feel more functionally fit. But the importance I'm learning (laughs) of having that plan and structure just to support the actual growth and my strength has increased. So it is really cool to see that. And I think hopefully more people will catch on to that. I think, you know, there is things people are learning. I I do think especially our generation, people are so much more inclined. They are more health conscious in general that I think we can get to that point. I think there are just some myths and walls that need to be broken down and moving away from just, oh, I want to be thinner. Yeah. And I think the one thing too, because when we think about the menstrual cycle and recovery in the cycle is a big topic, Following a consistent training program will actually make your recovery better because your body's not only one, adapted to it, but two, when you do random, like you were saying your joints feel better, which made me think about this. When you do random exercises all the time, the soreness and the inflammatory response and immune response is greater the first time your body is exposed to something. That's why like if you do something one week, you'll be really sore and the next week less sore and the next week less sore. And so when we think about, you know, training and adaptations to that, you might find that you're, I used to not follow a training program either early back in the day. And I felt like hot garbage in my early 20s. And I was like, I just did haphazard random training to a 400 pound deadlift. Like I had no business (laughs) being as fit and strong as I was because, you know, a lot of stuff works if you do enough of it correctly. But I was not following something consistent enough. And I struggle with hypermobility, so I get a lot of joint pain. And once I started actually training in consistent program and following it and like managing my volume and balancing my cardio versus strength versus high versus low intensity for us a week, I was like, oh my God, I feel so much better all of the time. Granted, not living off meal plan food that super processed all the time helped too. But I think people forget that. They're like, oh, I'm not recovering. I feel like crap. And I'm like, well, if you're doing very, very random things all of the time, the chances are that you're exposing yourself to new stimuluses and stressors all of the time and your body's not adapting to it. And that's one way that you can like 
kind of reduce that that soreness or that lack of recovery is to be consistent. But also that's a great way to identify when there's variations of things being influenced or swayed and all of that too. But I love that you mentioned that like your body feels better because I think a lot of people, you know, fitness is going to make you sore and fatigued and tired and you're going to have to recover at some points in time, but you shouldn't feel beat up all of the time. Especially I think that a lot of the messages towards women is like, junk volume, junk volume, junk volume, slap it all on, more is better, more, more, more. And then they feel so run down and they just feel like a hot trash can. Because I did the same thing, right? I mean, I was in my master's when I finally was like, hmm, maybe I should just do something a little bit more consistently. (laughs) One of my questions that I was going to ask you too, and I think you've basically just answered it, but so many women, you alluded to this, are looking for body changes. You know, weight loss is a massive industry for a reason. And I like to call it body composition changes, not weight loss, because most of the time you're gaining weight when your body changes, (laughs) or a lot of the times. But a lot of women are looking for that. They're looking for body changes. And I think that they run to decreasing calories and increasing intensity. And basically what I'm hearing you say, correct me if I'm wrong, is that a periodized training plan is going to be more beneficial for that person than just looking at cows and just looking at how intense they can go every day of the week. The way I like to think about exercise and fitness and what I wish more people thought of is like, I think if more of us viewed training like athletes, we would get a lot more results and progress out of it. Because if you look at your training sessions, not as a way to burn calories or become thinner or your vehicle to fat loss, you're going to have a lot more productive training sessions. Because one, we compensate a lot of calories that we burn from activity and it doesn't equate to as much fat loss as we think and it's this whole thing. But two, if we spend more time focused on improving our actual fitness from our training sessions, most of the needles of those things are going to move forward. But also, I am also pro body composition change. I think some people are truly wanting true actual fat loss. I think there's a spectrum of people who are more like, hey, you probably just don't need a body recomp. Versus people who are like, hey, you know, you might have some more adipose tissue and we might need to think about that more from like a fat loss perspective, but it's still body recomposition. And for all the people who want to improve body recomposition, they think about being too too much fat and they don't think enough about being under muscled or not having enough mus- muscle. And body composition is fat and muscles, the ratio of fat and muscle in your body. So there's two ways to improve body composition. One, improve muscle. Two, decrease fat. Or three, do both simultaneously. And I remember teaching the body comp lab to my undergrad students when I was in my PhD. And I would get all of these girls who would just cry because their BIA, which isn't the most accurate, would be really high. And by high, I mean like upper 20s, really not that high. But they were so thin. And I would have to explain to them, I'm like, you don't have excess fat to lose. You have muscle that you need to gain. That's what you need to do to increase that ratio. And of course, that's not the case for everybody, you know, especially when we think about, you know, just general weight statistics in our population. But for many people, the addition of muscle mass will not only change the shape of your body closer to what you're probably desiring to look like, it will make you more toned. You know, I know everyone hates the most word. I don't care if people use it. You'll be more built. It will give you more shape to your body. Or when we think about improving metabolism, if you are somebody who's potentially more at risk of metabolic disease or you have more adiposity or whatever it is, muscle tissue makes us more healthy. It's this biggest storage depot for our glucose. It helps improve insulin sensitivity. It also is the largest contributor to our resting metabolism. That's not to be confused with like gaining muscle doesn't like really boost your metabolism as much as people say it does. It's like a few calories per pound, but it is the largest contributor to our energy expenditure. 
But if you have more muscle and you weigh more, you're going to expend more and it's more energy costly for your body to build and maintain that. So there's some validity that that is kind of boosting it through those types of mechanisms. But focusing on the building of that muscle tissue and or preservation of it at all cost, if you are pursuing fat loss or body recomposition, should be your number one priority. One, if you care about the way your body looks at all, which most people do, that should be number one priority. Two, my bias is from health. We don't want to lose weight and weight be fat and muscle. You want to lose fat and gain muscle. So we have to think about these progressive training programs. I think that's like the biggest light bulb for most women is when they feel like do all these random things and whatever, lightweight stuff. And they'll be like, you would think that God himself came down on earth and showed them the way in the light. After like just one year of just like increasing their protein intake and doing some actual form of <laughs> resistance training. Like I, w- <laughs> like I wish it was more sexy than that. I always joke that like the fit- the hormone circle of the social media has now pinkified protein and weightlifting. And then they'll be like, everyone's training you like men, but we're not. And then it's just protein and weightlifting <laughs> like all over again. <laughs> then I'm like, you mean the thing that we know you should be doing? But that progressive training is going to allow you to actually get results way faster, even though it does take time more efficiently and more specifically. And then along the way, it's going to prove your health. But you need to go into your sessions with the idea of like, I'm in the session to gain muscle. I'm in the session to build tissue. I'm in the session to lift heavier, get stronger. Or I'm in the session to get this specific cardiovascular adaptation today. Going into your training sessions, the idea of I want to burn the most calories is going to rob you of a lot of joy. There's so many amazing things you can do with your body that are way more cool or fun than how many calories you burn. And two are probably going to actually like improve your metabolism way more than the other random stuff that you were doing anyway, if you're worried about that and your body along the way. So like if you train like an athlete for like think about how athletes are built, they got big, powerful butts and nice muscular legs and like these beautiful shoulder caps and like how are they training, right? They're training for speed, power. And like muscular hypertrophy is essentially what they're doing. And so like that, we respond the same way as them. The difference is that they've just been exposed to that stressor and we haven't. Beautifully said. Thank you. I think like even have noticed in, in someone similar to what Nora said, who's been active and athlete their whole life. And then all of a sudden I hit my mid thirties, I guess. Oh God. And realize like, I can't hold muscle the same. And what do I do? I increase my protein and like game changer. You know, so it is true. And it's funny to hear you because I haven't even thought of it this way of like just turning what men do into making it pink for women, protein. Or pinkifying fitness. And it makes me so mad. (laughs) But it's like at the same time, women think that they need to be doing yoga and Pilates. So maybe it's a good thing if we can just get them on the weights. Like I'm for it if it gets more women on the weights. I'm fine with it. I think the issue I have is they're like, they're lying to you and they've only trained you like men. But here we have the secret everyone's keeping from you. And we're like, what freaking secret? This is nothing. We know like the literature, they're like, science has ignored women. And this is what you, I'm like, you know how much data we have that high protein intakes and strength training are beneficial for women? It's like, there's a lot of things we don't have in sports science. <laughs> but that's something that we like, yeah, we're in pretty much agreement on. So I think it's funny. No, I'm all for whatever gets people into the door. It's when they like pit it against this like narrative. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Nobody has ever said this was not a good thing. It's the fitness industry who's been like high rep endurance, lightweights, like blast your fat hour long jumping cardio type things. Like that's blame the industry. Like the industry has been doing this. Not us. Not the science. Not the science. (laughs) I will give one caveat around the cycle sinking side of things because I am like, like I said, complete agreement. I think a benefit 
that it provides is a little bit of structure just in having rhythm. Whereas like if people have never even moved their body or they've never even thought about the foods or I think there is a mental component too of just knowing like I'm doing something that can potentially be supporting my body. Is it right? Is it wrong? Whatever. But again, it's I think for me, it's just like getting the wheels in motion and you're being more mindful around how you're actually feeling your body, how you're moving your body, or like, oh, I don't want to go to this party that I already committed to. I'm going to start my bleed. Like, if that gives you the reason to want to stay home, like, honor that boundary. So I like it for those reasons, but I agree with you in that. I don't think it needs to be this like rigid and it's not structured in the terms of from a true exercise perspective. But the population that I work with primarily are individuals that are trying to transition off of birth control and they've been, yeah, maybe over exercising, under fueling for a very, very long period of time. And the biggest thing that is needed, not just for folks who are coming off of birth control, is lowering stress. So I kind of see this as like a transition period and a way to just help implement some sort of rhythm and structure, but not, okay, this is your forever. And there's, again, there's no like right or wrong. Like if I do a HIIT training session when I'm on my period, I'm going to break my body. Like that is, could not be further from the truth. Monica and I've talked about how we feel the greatest when we're on our bleed. And that's actually a great time for building muscle. And it's, you don't need to just do yoga and Pilates and stretching. And again, it's more of this individualized side, but that's like the next tier. Like first, we just got to get you fueled, like you said in the beginning, eating enough, lowering stress, those things to help support your body. So I just want to give it like, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world, <laughs> but it's not science backed. <laughs> I think it depends on the advice being given and how it's being used. I'm not against like understand your cycle, understand your body, understand how you feel, track how you feel, actually track it. Don't just like haphazard. No, I just think that, you know, with all things health and fitness and I have this all the time. I'm like, people want to fight me all the time about the cycle thing and stuff. I'm like, I literally don't care what you do. I don't care, but I care when people are giving poor information to people who are desperate and prayed and vulnerable. I'm like, I don't really actually care. At the end of the day, like I can't fight the punch upward at the world of like, this is what you should do, blah, blah, blah. But I think it just depends on the prescription and the application because there's a difference between like, hey, you know you feel more terrible every month during this week. Why don't we adjust the layout of our training week or change that selection of this this week or adjust this RPE or increase this food component? Like that stuff I'm fine with. Like that's not the deal. You have to be careful with that, though, in the sense of like, if you're changing too many things all the time, I think a lot of the basic health, which I'm sure you're doing this with clients, the, a lot of the basic health behaviors that we know so better support the cycle and hormones and performance and recovery, while they might be more better or beneficial in certain times, they are good all of the time. So I think we just need to make sure we're not ignoring the habits. A lot of habits of things that we do are good all of the time, but I don't want it to come across that I'm like, oh, we should ignore all this all the time. But I just think that you know, we just have to be careful what exactly that prescription is versus like, I think some of the stuff out there online is like, you only can do this. You only should do this. And I think this is a big thing for women in general, like learning, hey, you can say no and you have boundaries and you can back out and you can change things. And maybe understanding that you're like, hey, I usually really don't feel like doing this at this time of the month, but also taking note of how that transcends 
to other areas. Like I just canceled two podcast interviews that I have in January because my workload's too high. And I just said, hey, I'm sorry, I cannot do this right now because my workload is too high. And that's managing stress, right? But I don't know where my hormones are going to be at that point in time, but you have that permission. So I think that's where those skills are important. So yeah, I don't know exactly what you're doing, but I think it just depends on like, I always have that caveat because you see some stuff on social media and you're like, okay, that's like not the worst application, whatever. That's probably fine, harmless or beneficial. And then you see some stuff and you're like, what's the God no Dwight thing from the office? Like you want to play that audio in the background? So I'm like, it always just depends. And I'm not saying that's what you're, you're doing the poor stuff, but I just think for the listeners, depending on like what advice you're getting on adjusting those things, just be mindful of what that actual suggestion is and don't get dogmatic of like, oh my God, if I don't do this this week, the whole world's going to end kind of thing. Again, not saying that's what you're doing. I just think that there's like, there's such a dichotomy of the advice being given. Yeah, I agree. I just think it's a huge bummer. And it's, I empathize with a lot of people that are confused. It's really hard. And like, I have qualms with just continuing to be on social media for that reason. Like, I want to be a voice, of course, and provide support for people, but they're already inundated. And I sometimes advise people like, hey, you need to just unsubscribe, like stop Googling the stuff. <laughs> like you're driving yourself crazy. Let me take that on for you. Like, let me guide you through what is going to work for you. Not like you said, your siblings, your friends, like what everybody else is doing. We got to Especially if all that advice and the conflict between, I mean, the same thing goes not just for cycle syncing, but nutrition and exercise. Like you know, identify a few key people that you really trust or you know are trusted sources and try to mute out the rest. Like, because it's like the same thing. Like, if you have a big following on social media, you'll get sent all this stuff all the time. Is this true? Is this good? Is this real? I'm like, your hesitation there of asking that is a sign that just dig into that. Why does that not seem like good to you and having those skills within that? But yeah, it's just, I feel the same way. Sometimes I, ha- I want to throw my phone into a pond, but then you're like, oh, there's good stuff that needs to be get get out there to the world. And it's hard and conflicting. So all that to say, I don't think that people shouldn't work with their own stuff, but it's about learning what works for you within that. That's like sometimes people can test me like, well, I do this and this works for me. And I'm like, okay, but that's what this post is saying that you should figure out what works for you and do that. So sounds like we're in agreement here. Like, <laughs> good job. <laughs> Some people just need the reassurance, though, too, right? They're like, yeah, they don't know. Lost. A little lost. Yeah, yeah. I'd be curious. So obviously we've talked about how the sex differences maybe aren't as severe as some of social media would lead us to believe. But are there things around fitness and training that you, like, in terms of sex differences that you do differentiate male versus female? Or is there, like, anything within the cycle that you're like, oh, as a female athlete, like, you should know this. Yeah. So I think there's two things. I think that everyone's obsessed with the cycle right now. And we're ignoring that we probably can get more data on protocols for training that potentially might benefit females more because of sex differences. I think sex differences are more apparent. That's not to say that like women don't adapt to exercise training like males. I always joke that it's like, you know, women aren't men. They're not a different species. So we have to remember that like they we still adapt very similarly to things. But The things where we differ is that we're more oxidative. We might be able to get away with shorter rest times when it comes to strength training or high intensity interval training. So we might recover better, you know, because we are more oxidative in response to these things. So there might be different protocols for that type of stuff that could come out. There's not a ton of studies on this, but I've I've seen a few things where it's like, oh, shorter hit intervals actually work for females versus males who might need longer because they're more glycolytic and they might not be recovering as well. And then there's things like when it comes to like high end strength training, women sometimes aren't as good as tapping into that like 
high-end strength range as males, but they might be able to do essentially more reps with like lower percentages of weights compared to males and things like that. So we can think about that when programming like higher level strength stuff, but we still adapt. Like we have, there's a meta-analysis by Roberts at all, I believe it is, essentially showing that women and men increase strength and muscle similarly in response to training programs. The only difference being slightly potentially upper body, but that probably has more to do with the fact that women start with the lower baselines. They have a greater margin of gain. We adapt and we, you know, we respond to these things with times. And so we do adapt to these things, but the differences are men are more glycolytic and women are more oxidative. And so we might be utilizing more fat across the board in a lot of things that we do. My important caveat to that, though, is that that ability to oxidize fat and being fat oxidative and things like that with training is also going to be more of a byproduct as well from endurance training and being cardiovascularly trained. So it's not an excuse for poor training status of like just being female. We still want to adapt and train those things. So those are the things that I'm thinking are like going to come out over time potentially of protocols for like sports specific ways to approach things like strength training or hit or recovery periods and things like that. We're thinking about that within the populations. Women might be able to handle more volume. So you might have a female athlete who can potentially handle a little bit more like high rep, high load, high volume type stuff and recover better from it within that training and or just be able to like do higher sets and reps of at a volume set within like more reps for the same RPE, so to speak, of a, a different percentage and things like that. But then when we think about the menstrual cycle, I mean, this, so those are two great different conversations. And I think that's what's really missing from a lot of these conversations in the online space is that sex differences and menstrual cycle differences are two different things. Women have the menstrual cycle is within the female category that sex differences, but those are two different things. And so yes, men are going to be more powerful, more stronger, have more endurance, more type two muscle fibers. They're going to be faster and lift more by nature off the, the grit than us. But then when we think about the menstrual cycle, you know, right now what we're seeing in the data is one, 50% of studies say there's no effect at all. 50% that do, none of them are in agreement. So it's like, it's like, but when we look at the trends, what we might see is that you might have lower performance in the late luteal phase or the early menstrual cycle phase. So the last few days right before you start your period or right at the start of it, there's not a ton of data on this, but there's a good bit of self-report of females who, you know, report that their ovulation period is actually pretty terrible for them and that's when they feel the worst. So that's the one that I think always gets left out of a lot of conversations is some people are like, they feel they don't recover well, they're not as power. Everyone's like, you should do hit, power output, max out, clean your house, get pregnant, like become the president <laughs> all between day 13 and 15. Like you should just like do all for two days. And some people are like, I actually feel like trash during that period of time. So it's just, you know, that's like what you see. But when we're thinking about it as a whole, you know, again, I take this nutrition forward approach when we think about the cycle. So, you know, from that perspective, I think like we're potentially slightly more carbohydrate relying, glycolytic, depleting our glycogen stores in that follicular phase, and maybe more fat oxidative in that luteal phase and maybe needing more protein. But then you know, within these things, I also like the caveat of like the difference in the protein needs is like maybe like five to 10%, which is maybe a few grams. So like if you're eating moderate to high protein intake across the month, it's probably not that big of a difference. It's probably better for you just to eat more protein all of the time. But if you're someone who doesn't or is recovering more poorly and you want to bump that up because you're not at that highest threshold of protein intake, that could be appropriate. And then maybe potentially, you know, having more carbs overall in the follicular phase. And then when it comes to the luteal phase, I like thinking of taking our carbs and periodizing them more closely to our training sessions um, because there is some data that shows that differences in performance go away in a fed state and metabolism or performance during the luteal phase. So that's a big thing. It's like, well, are you fed? Like, yeah, metabolism is differences exist unless they're fed or it's at intensity and then it doesn't, then it's a wash. 
But I like that idea of having them either during or intra if you're doing something like long endurance. And you should always have these things, but like making sure that you're really prioritizing that. And then I really like the idea of like if you're going to use protein supplementation or front load a big meal, doing it before your workout so you have those amino acids in your bloodstream to take up and use. Because the idea is that the luteal phase is potentially a little bit more catabolic because of the high progesterone, things like that. And then the idea of, you know, putting the carbs around your workouts is there is a little bit of data to suggest insulin sensitivity and glucose is altered in that phase. But it's important to note that that variation is drastically reduced in lean active individuals compared to less active or people with a higher body weight status. So that you might not notice that as much, you know, if you're somebody who's like lean and normally active, you might not feel like your insulin sensitivity is off that month. But those are the things that I usually like to recommend within that phase. And then thinking about like smart supplementation to support these things. So one of the biggest things that might occur with that luteal phase is that your your exercise performance when it comes to aerobic-based stuff might feel harder and your heart rates might go higher, your paces might be slower because you might have poor thermoregulation. So you might not be regulating your body temperature as much. This might impact sleep. But if you're thinking about hot or humid environments that you're exercising in, you might have to lower the intensity or should I say lower the pace to match the intensity of the goal of the day. So if you're doing like a zone two workout and you're in your luteal phase and you find that you normally do zone two at 1030, you might have to do it at 1045 that day to get back into that type of thing with that body. But then again, nutrition, my favorite, uh, pre-loading sodium and hydration and cooling protocols can help reduce that. But you might have higher ventilation, higher heart rate and potentially impact performance because that increased cardiovascular strain in that phase. But again, we have data suggesting that, you know, good nutrition and supplement and supporting protocols might help that. There is some newer data that's coming out that showed, interestingly, that creatine helped potentially with the water retention in that phase. My friend Sam did that study. And so I'm big pro of creatine across the entire month, but that might help with some of that fluid retention and issues within that. And then we think about that late luteal phase into the menstrual cycle. You know, a lot of a lot of the data that we have right now doesn't really show these conclusive changes of the menstrual cycle's physiology impacting performance, like the more controlled a study is where we have blood markers and we know what the hormones are and we look at performance markers, the less differences we see in the menstrual cycle. It's more of the poor methodological studies where we're seeing that. But we have this interesting, this is still preliminary stuff, suggesting that some of this might be due to perception and how you feel your motivation, your pain perception, you know, how you feel about your cycle and that might be more related to that, but also things might just feel harder your RPE might go up at the same relative intensity, you might have a lower pain threshold, things like that. So your perception of these things might impact this as well. But the thing that is also associated for many people of their performance being impacted or pain of that is going to be PMS symptoms, which are highly related to inflammation in the body. So we could potentially do things to help bring that down or use sparse supplementation to support sleep, inflammation, and or micronutrient changes that are occurring across the month in that late luteal phase potentially. So things like magnesium, vitamin D, calcium. Calcium and iron, I'm very hesitant to recommend people to supplement with willy-nilly without looking at their blood work simply because those are things that you don't necessarily want to take unless you are deficient in, especially when iron deficiency and iron excess can be an issue. But getting blood testing for those types of things and seeing if you need to supplement with them. Curcumin and fish oil are potentially coming out now as things that might help with that inflammation. Again, these are supplements like you don't have to periodize them to half the month. You can take them the whole month. Like this is a thing where I'm like, this might really support luteal phase recovery and late luteal phase feelings of these things. But also like you don't have to not only take these half the like you don't have to eat high protein and take magnesium and vitamin D and like fish oil for half the month kind of things. 
But these are things that might support this. And then one thing that's been coming out too, besides like the creatine thing or whatever that I think is interesting is like data on tart cherry juice might help with some of those sleep impacts that are happening potentially in that phase, but also in general might be really good for reducing post-exercise inflammation, like in general for uh, for everyone, but that can be really useful for people within either peri or menopause or this luteal phase, things like that. So I again, I take this very nutrition forward approach to these things because I think a lot of people either are not listening and regulating their bodies to begin with with training, which I'll talk about in a second, but they're also just like underfed or undernourished in some degree. Either they're doing, I'm sure Nora, you see this specifically working as an RD, but they're doing either haphazard eating. So it's like, oh, I had a whiff of air and coffee in the morning and a few lettuce for lunch and then half the kitchen for dinner or like every other day, something first during the week and then you're overeating on the weekend or they're going through these cycles of like restriction and overeating and like, or they're eating a lot of processed foods and they're not eating a ton of micronutrient-dense foods or anything with fiber. So then like, you're like, I'm bloated. I feel like crap. I have this PMS. I'm fatigued. Of course, I don't want to back squat. And you're like, yeah, probably don't want to do that either, right? Like, I totally get that. So I really like this, besides thinking about being fuel dig to begin with, like, how can we support our bodies and look at this stuff across the month and like smart supplementation? Like, tests don't guess for anything that you're unsure about. Most people are deficient in magnesium. So like, it's easy to say, everyone take magnesium and like creatine safe in everyone. So it's like easy to be like, everyone take creatine. And like, those are really easy blanket statements. But we're, I think some of this data that we're seeing will be really helpful for helping reducing some of that impact of the luteal phase or that late luteal phase demonstration for a lot of people, you know, when it comes to these things. So it's like, when I say like, I'm not cycle zinky, I'm like, don't do only yoga one week, hit one week this. But I do think you're like, you should listen to what's going on in your body and think about how you can support that best. But then it's like, we sh- if you do most of these things all the time, then you're going to build these great <laughs> habits that are going to support this all of the time kind of thing. And then when it comes to training, my biggest thing is I think from like the haphazard workouts or not following consistent training programs and not listening to their body is nobody has learned the skill of autoregulation. So autoregulation in sport and exercise science is this thing known as RPE, and it's the scale of 1 to 10 or like 6 to 20, but no one really uses a 6 to 21 anymore. Rate of perceived exertion, just for anybody like... Who doesn't? Yes. Sorry. Rating of perceived exertion. And it's like 10 is the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. And one is like the easiest thing you've ever done in your life. And so most exercise when it comes to cardiovascular training, this also lines up nicely with zones. Everyone's been talking about this. You know, zones are all the rage nowadays. And you can think about like, how hard was this? And if you have a prescription of difficulty, then you can adjust what you're doing within your training program, whether that's pace or load or even volume, if you need to appropriately according to how you feel that day. And so this is also great with lifting because it can be like, how many reps do I have left in the tank? And so if you're going to like, hey, I'm going to lift till I have like three or four reps in the tank. And like last week you felt amazing and you were doing 150 for three by five. And that was what you were doing in your set. And this week you kind of feel crummy and you start warming up and you get to 135 and you're like, and you do a set of five and it's at the RPE that you were trying to hit or like three or four reps left, that can be your set. That's where you would stop. And I think that that's a skill because it helps not only with potentially like, you know, a lot of people report that their strength feels more impacted in that late luteal phase. That might be what's happening. You know, if we have some data that suggests strength might be down and we don't know if that's due to pain perception and tolerance or neuromuscular firing and contractation of you know, the neurons and the muscles because of that decline in hormones, that leading into the the onset of the menstrual cycle. I don't think that's conclusive at this time, but, you know, that's a great way to be like, you know, and we've seen all the trending videos of like, here's my back squat the week before my period, and here's my back squat the week of my period. And like, well, if you knew auto-regulation, you would know to just 
And you can find those trends over time and you can track that across your cycle and your training and you can look for these zigzags over time of progress as women if you need to across your cycle. But then that also allows you to accommodate for the fact, like I just had someone message me the other day and they're like, I have a 21-day cycle. None of this app, this, this information out there applies to me, but it allows them to figure out how to work within themselves with that. Because yeah, that 28-day cycle is not, and that's gonna leave the 21-day girls in the wind because they're like, wait, I blinked and my period's back again, right? So how do you learn to manage your volume and your tendency or recognize, okay, I'm feeding myself, I'm fueling myself, I'm doing all these things and I still feel like my recovery is more poor here or I don't feel as good here or I'm not as motivated to train. Maybe then it's like you're not doing four by three this week, you're doing three by three. And instead of doing it at an eight, you're doing it at a seven, but you're still doing the same thing. You're just adjusting these variables in training in a way that allows you to make that progress or adjust appropriately without saying, well, the easy solution is just don't do it at all. Well, how do we keep doing it in a way that allows you to support yourself or your hormones or whatever that looks like as well? And so there is a few handful of studies looking at, you know, luteal versus follicular phase strength training and for muscle strength and hypertrophy. And it's just not impressive. We might have a benefit. Estrogen is a very muscle promoting hormone. I think a lot of people think that like estrogen is like the girly hormone that doesn't support gains, but estrogen is actually really important for muscle recovery and growth. And so the the theory is that the follicular phase is more beneficial for strength and hypertrophy training because of this estrogen state. And so I think that, you know, when we look at the data right now, yeah, if you were only going to train in your follicular phase or only going to train in your luteal phase, it might be better to train in your follicular phase. But we just don't have anything impressive right now that says that that's better than training across the entire month, so to speak. But I think the approach there that we should take away from this, this is where we take science into coaching application is if I have a client who feels like absolute trash in their luteal phase, maybe we're doing more volume in the follicular phase and then pulling back there, whether that's while we're figuring out their symptoms or how to manage that or that's just what they need kind of thing going straight to Pilates and yoga and walking and laying on the floor and doing nothing, we're adjusting our volume and our intensity for that. Or if people really want to experiment with this, I would be like, okay, then yeah, do two weeks of more, like it's essentially undulated periodization where you're doing two weeks on, two weeks off. I don't like the idea of the two weeks off, but I think, you know, I think the luteal phase, you can still sustain a lot of activity at a pretty moderate to decent level. It's that very, very end. So then I like to, you know, encourage people think about like once you know the patterns of your week and your month and you know when you either feel the worst or your hormones feel the worst or your recovery feels tanks, how can you rearrange your weeks of training to accommodate that? I like the idea of front or back loading your weeks of training. So if you can avoid that three to four day window at the very end of your luteal phase and beginning of your menstrual cycle phase where you feel really crappy, like for many people, they're like, well, I don't feel like I need to take off a week and a seven to 10 days every single month, but I might have then like they might be like, well, but these the day before and the day of my period is just like. I can't do anything but just like exist. And that's where you're like, okay, well, like, why don't we plan for that in your training plan? What if on the weeks you know you're getting in your period, you don't work out those three days in a row. You just have that open window there and then or you can do your yoga or your Pilates or your easier stuff and schedule it then to that or you just take an extra rest day that week or maybe you you deload whatever lift was on those days or whatever that is. But I don't think for everyone they're feeling like they they need a seven to 10 day window. And I think if somebody needs a seven to 10 day window to just lay on the floor, we have bigger problems that we need to be addressing than just like, hey, you know what? I don't really feel like maxing out on the day, the, la- the last day of my cycle kind of thing. So that's kind of my take on all of that. So it's like, it's it's very like, hey, let's feed and fuel ourselves. Let's adjust these things. Let's see where that improves. 
And then from there, we figure out, okay, what's actually happening for me and how do I feel? Because then, you know, we have some very early data that cycle performance, even I saw this at the female athlete conference and I thought this was great. They tracked athletes across two cycles and their performance characteristics and performance was different at each cycle. So like what happens if one month you're feeling really on and then the next month you're feeling really off? So it's like, how do we give you the skills to work with your body and with your physiology while also knowing that that's going to change across your entire lifespan? But I'm bummed. I think that's so relatable, like so relatable too, because I think anyone listening who is menstruating knows that like no two cycles are alike. You have a good cycle and then you'll have a bad cycle. And it's like my biggest takeaway from today is just like bio-individual, all of us are. So we need to learn how to connect with our bodies and our own experience and do periodized training. And track. I would say tracking. Like, I think so much is that people, if you're not following a program or you're not in tune with where you're at, it's hard to put those puzzle pieces together. And I think that is absolutely where working with a coach and somebody who understands and can put that data together. I don't ask people to like, okay, now now you know. It's like, okay, let's use that information to better support you. So I think tracking and like feeling more body equipped. Yeah, actually, no. One, tracking a program, because guess what? If you track your training variables, you're going to actually know and detect those things over time. But you need to first actually know where the heck, I usually recommend before people make like any overhauling changes, just track for three to six months, actually get to know your patterns in your cycle. You can, you can adjust things as you go. Like if you know somebody who's like under eating, like don't wait three to six months to be like, eating more would improve your cycle. This isn't to you guys. This is just like in general. But (laughs) like, I think so many people, they're like surprised that they're getting their period, right? They're like, why am I crying in the grocery store parking lot today? And then the next day they're like, bam, my period. And they have no idea that it's coming. Right. And so I think that helps. Like, I think the one good thing coming out of all this is like, yeah, learn why your body is doing what it's doing and what's going on. And like, stop being so mean to yourself and stop judging yourself and stop beating yourself up more with fitness or exercise or starvation or whatever it is in response to these things that are just normal, (laughs) like within reason, of course, but you know what I mean. I have loved this conversation. I think a a lot of our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. And hopefully this is the impetus for them to actually get started following a plan if they are not committed and they needed some convincing like this is your sign to do it and don't be intimidated you don't have to like go in tomorrow and follow the most perfect exact thing start slowly like i just never want people to feel like you have to go to like be an extreme athlete basically right right like you know you don't have to go monica and train for an ultra just off the bat you can be nora who's like hey i'm just now learning how to do this after all this time and you can meet yourself where you're at. Totally. I've loved this conversation as well. I think there's been so many good things and our audience is really going to benefit. So thank you so much. Hopefully that last little word vomit will help people be feel restored that I'm like not like not a camp of like you're all making it up. Nothing's going on. Like here's some things to actually do to help support you because I think that's what's missing is like even on the internet I think a lot of stuff's just like you might feel this way. Okay. (laughs) Like, there's here's nothing to actually help you. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, really quick, we're gonna do a super fast lightning round. We love our audience to get to know the people we have on our podcast. So, first question is, what is your favorite meal to cook or consume? I hate cooking. I really do. I hate it. If if you follow me on social media, you know I am known for my Chipotle delivery. Perfect. (laughs) It's healthy. It's convenient. They take it to your door. It's guacamole. 
Chipotle. <laughs> I love that. Chipotle has been making me sick recently. Has I've it? been, yeah, like I've had multiple instances. I love Chipotle, but I don't love being on the toilet. So, I yeah, no. That luckily that doesn't happen to me. It's like the one thing, especially when I'm like training for races and stuff, and I need a lot of calories. But I have like all these different meals manipulations for when I need more fat versus less fat, depending on like the day in my training. And I have like my whole Chipotle algorithm like figured out based on that. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole science. <laughs> Okay, do you prefer your morning routine or your evening routine? I am pro evening routine. I think that an evening routine sets you up for more success than a morning routine. That's my unpopular hot take. But I'm very sleep protective, very, very sleep protective. So I'm very pro nighttime routine, wind down. I'm also a high energy person. So I have to like, I sometimes set an alarm on my phone. This It says wind down like for like 7 p.m. So I start to like, yeah, love that. What is your favorite period product? This is going to be very unpopular for this podcast, but my favorite period of product is my birth control. <laughs> no, birth control is a tool. No babies. No babies. No babies. If people don't want to get pregnant, they should be using birth control for sure. Yeah. I When you sent me the email, I was like, that's not going to be a popular opinion. But, you know, a surprise baby while finishing a PhD we're not against, definitely not against birth control by any means. I know a lot of people like feel like that's like a taboo thing to say. And I'm like, no, that's been a very empowered decision for me while pursuing a graduate degree. <laughs> I think in that is the key word that you just said is that it's a decision and it's not just the only option given to someone. It's a decision. Yeah. And I'll encourage your users here as I dug into the female physiology research and things like that. Like I sat down and had conversations with my OB about certain things and my choices and what I was doing and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I actually like made sure that I was feeling empowered because I was going to get off at one point and then I was like, mm, pregnancy. <laughs> so then it was like this really like great conversation where I talked about these things and like for myself and where I was at in my life. And I felt good with it, leaving that conversation. Right. And so I think that's important to recognize for people. I know we didn't talk about birth control today, but I was worried about like increase like triglycerides and some of the cardiometabolic things that might come along with it. But I'm very, very highly active and I'm eat very, very healthy and my blood stuff was good. So we had this great conversation of like, hey, not being pregnant is the biggest thing for you right now. We'll finish a graduate degree and getting off that transition is going to be very stressful for you. So like that was the empowering conversation I had with that. And I really love that because I was like, that's exactly where I was at in that phase of my life where I was like, yeah, here's the things like that. So to listeners, encourage, that's my stance on birth control too, is like it's a decision between you, yourself, and your doctor, and your life, and your choices. I think it's awesome that you have a provider that wouldn't even sit there to have that conversation, I think. I don't know if I get lucky with medical providers because I know what to ask and I know how to speak their language, or if I get lucky just because I'm me and I, <laughs> I tend to get lucky with things. Okay, last one is, is there a book just in general that's had a significant impact on you? So I definitely read a, a good bit, but one book that I always, I find I recommend to people a lot and I really love is this really, really short, sweet and simple book by uh, called uh, Passion Paradox. And as somebody who's a high achiever, multi-passionate, you know, go, 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 that was a book that I read in the middle of my PhD, especially like the very balances bullshit type mantra and like what actually balance looks like and balancing being very driven and and also like being a human and all those things, I felt like I really resonated and identified that that book a lot at that point in time in my life. And I always 
really, really, it's a very short, sweet book, but I really like it. And it takes a lot of my views of how I feel about actual balance and how it's kind of bullcrap and all that stuff and like how to manage being driven and successful with also being a human at the same time. So I really like that book. There's probably a million more on my bookshelf. Uh, my husband, we just put up our bookshelf. We just moved and he made fun of me. He said, You're, all you read is sports, self-help, and outdoors memoirs. And I was like, <laughs> the other someday I am other genres. So other than a good beach read, that's pretty much my bookshelf too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like in textbooks. I was like his is just like war and science. And I'm like, okay, you're a man, whatever. <laughs> well, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us today. Please tell all of our people where they can find you. Yeah. So I feel like I know there's a ton of stuff you wanted to cover as well that we didn't get to today, but if you guys you know, want to find me, I mostly hang out on Instagram at Docless Fitness. And then I've been growing on YouTube slowly but surely at Docless Fitness. I feel like people are coming at me with pitchforks and fire because I'm not putting out enough female physiology stuff at the rate they want me to. But bear with me. I am post-docking so hard right now <laughs> trying to get some papers out. But other than that, I mostly hang out on Instagram and there. And then you can find everything I offer there. I'm hopefully coming out with maybe some more webinar and educational materials related to this next year at some point in time. Um, but then otherwise, you can just learn from me. And then, you know, if you what I think I would really encourage the audience here is like, if you really struggle with like that periodized training and how to actually strength train or endurance train and like what that actually means, I actually have a ton of content on that because we didn't touch on it. But like my big gimmick is like hybrid training and doing endurance or running with lifting and strength training. But like, how do we actually apply exercise science to those things? And so I think a big guys in the industry right now is like, well, what's the perfect training program for being on your period or, you know, perimenopause or menopause and things like that. And like these very basic foundational things kind of work for everyone, slight manipulation of variables in between. But those are the things that I think people really, really need to know and understand. So I am an exercise physiologist. So I love to talk about exercise physiology and I do a lot of that. And you can find that, you know, between my Instagram and my YouTube there as well. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. The information in today's episode is not to be used as medical advice. If you are currently struggling with or dealing with something out of the ordinary, we highly recommend talking directly to your provider.